0: Welcome to episode 11 of Behold Her, a podcast that shines a spotlight on women in the world of tabletop RPGs. This episode is all about women uncaged, that is, the women of the Uncaged Anthology Project. Uncaged is a collection of myth and folklore themed adventures written for 5th edition Dungeons and Dragons. Each original adventure subverts tropes around a female mythological creature or monster, including hags, harpies, medusas, much, much more. But. Uncaged grew to be more than a collection of D&D stories. Critics called it a landmark in the social history of Dungeons & Dragons. It sparked a creative fervor. It's best to hear this from the woman who started it all. We'll chat with Uncaged founder Ashley Warren and contributor Jessica Markram. We'll also hear from contributor Colette Kwok in an audio story about what Uncaged meant to her. But first, Beholder could not bring you awesome audio stories and essays without our wonderful sponsors. Colette's story is sponsored by Dungeon Masters Guild. DMsguild.com is your go-to marketplace for licensed 5th edition D&D adventures and supplements, including Uncaged Volumes 1, 2, and 3. If you enjoyed Uncaged, you might also enjoy Friends, Foes, and Other Fine Folks. That's a collection of diverse NPCs. monsters of the old world a collection of creatures inspired by european folklore and written by a multinational team of creatives ashley warren is a powerhouse in addition to being the founder of uncaged she's an any nominated storyteller and producer one of the dungeon masters guild adepts director of the rpg writer workshop professional DD streamer that just scratches the surface we are on Behold Her today talking to the prolific, industrious, amazing, beautiful, talented, wonderful Ashley Warren. Hi, Ashley. Thanks for joining us today. Hi. That was that was quite the introduction. My cheeks are a little pink. <laughs> <laughs> well, this whole episode is themed around the Uncaged anthology. It is Women Uncaged, and so we couldn't have this episode without chatting with you, the founder of Uncaged.
1: Well, I appreciate it and always excited to talk about Uncaged.
0: Before we dive into the anthology, tell us a little bit about how you got into Dungeons and Dragons and role-playing games.
1: Sure. So I still feel like I'm kind of new to this whole world, but I have been interested in fantasy role-play since really since I was a child, but I didn't really have a chance to play D&D until I was an adult. So I started playing, I think, about three years ago when I realized that all of my friends also wanted to play and hadn't played yet. And we were like, well, why don't we just start playing D&D? And this was right when it was starting to... get more popular and Critical Role had been on for like a year at that point. And so we just decided to give it a try. And I just got so obsessed with it immediately. And the nexus of things that I already enjoyed, like fantasy literature and role play games and playing things with my friends in person. So having an analog activity that wasn't something that was a video game, uh, was something that was really important to me and kind of made the experience even better. So from that point on, it just became a huge part of my life. Do you remember your first character? Yeah, my first character was a rogue named Arcady and she was like a like a librarian professor. She was very academic. Her background was the sage background and I was really into this idea of creating a character who is like very academic but like really enjoys adventuring. It was she was fun to play but I didn't really know how to create a character with like an interesting backstory at that point. So she was fun, but I never really felt super connected to her. Um, It was really my second character, my warlock that I totally fell in love with. And um, that really kind of elevated the whole experience for me.
0: What was your approach to creating or playing the warlock that made it really different from playing your rogue?
1: I think at that point, We had already played a full campaign. I had played a full campaign with my rogue, and I realized that having a fun backstory or an interesting backstory is what gives your character the motivation to do the things that they do. And so I put a lot more thought into creating a backstory for my warlock that I knew would continue to inspire me and and her decisions. So for that character, she has a little brother, which I do in real life, and we're very close. But my warlock's brother was basically taken from... By, um, a demon when they were both children and she's basically been looking for him for all these years and that's given her a reason to kind of explore otherworldly entities and kind of she wants to kind of travel through different planes and um to do that she's trying to acquire these different you know magical abilities and basically she called out for help and the great old one answered and so that kind of set her on this path to um kind of into the darkness or wherever it takes to, to find this person that she loves so much. And through that journey, she just is, is challenged in different ways and questions what it means to be a warlock and tied to these entities that are so much more than she can really understand. I just find that I find warlocks really interesting because of that relationship with their patrons. And that can be so different from character to character. And for my character, it's very much like this gray area, like they're not an evil... Entity, But they're not necessarily good. And for me, that kind of represents like the pursuit of knowledge that can be a good kind of adventure, or it can be you know, a selfish adventure. So I just, I don't know, I always, I'm just really inspired by that kind of a
0: character build. Yeah, just even hearing you talk about your character's backstory for a couple minutes, there's already so much depth there. But I'm also, as you're talking about it, I'm noticing some connections between the two characters you described and the character I personally know best, um, Constantina, (laughs) where there's this like pursuit of knowledge. Um, Both your warlock and Constantina have little brothers. So how much of yourself... Do you feel you put into your characters or what do you explore through your characters that you maybe can't in everyday life?
1: I definitely part of what I like about d d is being able to explore aspects of my own personality in these fantasy worlds because I actually don't necessarily get a chance to fight dragons, but my characters can. So I do like to create characters who have some similar personality traits to myself because I find that really rewarding yeah, I mean, all of my characters kind of share this link where they are interested in learning, they're interested in culture, and they want to travel and be challenged so that they can just become better people. And that's very much what drives my own life. And my characters tend to have yeah a younger brother, in part because that relationship has been kind of a defining relationship in my life. And I, I'm i interested in like what my characters will do for the people that they love the most. So yeah, I put a lot of myself into my characters. I will say that Constantina... My warlock Amira, I would say, is a little bit more closer to my real personality, whereas Constantina, she's a bit more um, like lively and outgoing than I feel like I am in real life. But I, I feel like I feel very connected to both of those characters in part because I've really been able to play them in fairly long campaigns, and they've gone through some really difficult experiences. And I feel like at this point, I, I feel, I guess, I feel equally toward toward both characters, but in part because their goals and their outlook on life are very similar. To mine that, like no matter how dark things get, like they always kind of have this strong sense of self, and that carries them them through their many adventures.
0: Your passion for characters and the stories that drive them, and Dungeons and Dragons as a player, is coming through really clearly. How did you make that leap from playing DnD a couple years ago or a few years ago to becoming a creator for Dungeons and Dragons?
1: I have always been a writer since I was a little kid. It's always just been really closely linked to my identity. Writing for me was often a personal thing. Like I've I've always considered myself a writer and I've always studied the literary arts, um, both like just as a personal endeavor, and that's what my degrees are in. So in that sense, like I've always felt very literary. But usually writing for me is just a personal thing. I love telling stories. I find it very important to my mental health to write on a regular basis. And what I like to write is usually very character driven. I like to write about female characters specifically, in part because it's a way for me to ex- like kind of explore my own experiences in the world. And so for, for D&D, because it's participatory, I find that to be a really satisfying way to create women characters that are different and go through these different experiences. Because players can interface with them and can kind of change the outcome of these characters' stories in some capacities. So for me, that's just always kind of been a running theme in my life that I like to write. I like to write about women who are being challenged, um, who can overcome adversity in some way. And D&D just ultimately has become such a great platform for
0: me to explore that, that ongoing theme. What was the first title you published uh, for 5th edition D&D?
1: The first title I published was called A Night of Masks and Monsters, which is a masquerade that's set in this city that's very much inspired by Venice. I actually started writing this adventure when I was on a family trip to Italy. So I was in Venice when I was like thinking of this idea and how cool it would be to have a D&D story that was set in this like fantastical version of Venice. And when I was exploring the city, like there's all of these uh, masks that the carnival masks that are very um, famous. And a lot of them have um, depict like animals and creatures from mythology. And I thought it would be really cool if players could go to this masquerade and wear different masks that have these different magical effects. And so from there, I just um, kind of started to, started to put together this story. And I've always, I always want to play stories where characters get to go to like a fancy party, but there's like some sort of objective that they have to complete there. And so, um, and I was trying to get my, my dungeon master at the time to run a module like that. So I was like, well, why don't I just write something? I wasn't super familiar with Dungeon Masters Guild at the time, but my DM was like, you should publish anything that you write onto there. That's like what it's for. It's a platform for people to publish their D&D adventures. And I was like, okay, I guess I will. And I wasn't really expecting anyone to see it or to download it. And that actually continues to still be probably my most popular adventure, which is kind of wild to me. But yeah, that was, my, that was my very first one and still one that I, I, I find to be
0: fun and very atmospheric. Yeah. I've actually, I ran that one at Geek Girl Con last year yeah. or some one hour version of it. And the masks and like all the intrigue and mystery are super fun.
1: I really enjoy reinventing kind of classic settings, um, as I feel like that's pretty evident in most of my work. So I mean, obviously, like a masquerade, a Venice-themed masquerade isn't really like the the most original concept, but I found it really fun to kind of put my own spin on it. And I like to do that in, in lots of different ways as, as a writer to retell or reinvent kind of established uh, settings or, or tropes that people are familiar
0: with. So since writing uh, The Night of Masks and Monsters, you've become a guild adept. You've written for the D&D Adventurers League, a number of third-party publishers for D&D, maybe some secret things into the works, I would hazard mm-hmm. a guess. What has that been like? It feels like it's been a whirlwind. I mean, a deserved whirlwind. Tell me your perspective.
1: Yeah, it's it has absolutely been a whirlwind. I published A Night of Master Monsters in December 2017. And since I did that, my life has been so different than I would have expected. And I mean, like I mentioned, I've always been a writer, I used to work professionally as a journalist, I used to run literary magazines and websites, like I'm not writing for an audience is not necessarily new to me, but I've never had this kind of response to my work. And so in that way, it's just it's been totally unexpected and, and really exciting to finally feel like I've um, made some strides as, as a writer in, in new ways. And yeah, I feel like the journey continues to get more wild by the day. Every time I think that life is going to maybe calm down for a bit, it does the opposite, but it's it's all been it's been like such a blessing and I feel like I just happened to get involved with Dungeons and Dragons at such a wonderful time where I've been able to meet people like you and so many other people that I've been able to collaborate with and form these amazing friendships and just get opportunities to write for this global audience that I've it, like these are opportunities that I've never had before. So, I feel like I'm still learning what it's like to actually write for an audience that is so dedicated and so passionate about this shared game. Yeah, it's just, it's been, it's been amazing. It's been exciting. It's been emotional. It's been hard. A lot of days it's, it feels hard just because, I mean, I set really high expectations for myself, but I also know that people have high expectations of me. And so I always want to feel like I'm doing everything I can to meet those expectations. And yeah, I mean, it's, I'm so excited for everything that's in the work and for the future. And it's just, yeah, it's, it's just been amazing. I would have never dreamed of any of this.
0: Yeah, you mentioned all of these opportunities to put your work out there for a global audience to collaborate and meet other creators. And through the Uncaged Anthology, you're really sort of paying that forward and creating those opportunities for others, who want to dive into d writing. So let's turn the conversation to Uncaged, the theme of this episode. To start us off, in your words, what is Uncaged, for those who don't know, and how did that project come about?
1: Uncaged is a collection of myth and folklore themed retellings that all have a feminist twist. Each adventure the collection is written by a different author, and each one focuses on a female creature from mythology. So for me, Medusa was kind of the inspiration for this whole project. There is a piece of art, it's like a statue created by an Italian artist named Luciano Garbati, and it depicts Medusa holding the head of Perseus, which is a reversal of how she's usually portrayed, which is Perseus holding her head and using it as a weapon to turn other people into stone. And I was really inspired by that as a concept in part because Medusa is found in the Monster Manual along with a lot of other female creatures including hags and harpies and banshees and sirens. There's just there's just so many. And I was really excited by the idea of using these creatures in D&D modules where players could interact with these creatures in a different way, or at least maybe understand their origin stories, in part because a lot of these creatures have kind of negative portrayals in mythology, especially like hags. Like we we associate like old women with being hag-like and for Medusa um, and creatures like that, like they're either over sexualized or their their bodies are used in pretty grotesque ways. And so there's a lot of misunderstandings about these creatures and what their their stories are. And because you can play and interface with these characters in a DD story, it's just such a great opportunity to kind of put our own spin on these on these um, creatures. That was my original approach to what I thought Uncaged could be. And my original idea was just to write a couple adventures by myself. I had kind of a trilogy in my head. And at the time, I was working on another solo adventure trilogy that I still have in the works. And each of those adventures features a female creature or a person um, who's being kind of ostracized by society in some way. So that was kind of a theme that was on my mind already. But since the Monster Manual already has all of these creatures in there and has lore that connects them to the greater forgotten realms and other settings in in D&D. Um, it just seemed like such a great opportunity. And so I, I kind of realized, though, as I was thinking about it, it was starting to become a bigger project, because there, I realized that there were so many creatures that needed their own adventure. And I was like, well, I don't really need to do this as project by myself. So I had planned to maybe just recruit a couple of my friends, including you, to to, um, be a part of this with me. But I posted it on Twitter and it kind of just took off and became a much bigger project almost immediately. And yeah, I just kind of was like running to keep up after that point.
0: It exploded. I remember like your... Your thread went crazy and then you were creating like forms that people could fill out because I imagine like trying to keep up with the responses was so much. And I mean, you've described what Uncaged is as in anthology, as a product. But it's also become this community of creators. There are spin-off products. I mean, on Dungeon Masters Guild, since Uncaged was released, I now look at the most popular title strip on DungeonMastersGuild.com, and I'm seeing way more diversity in people who are publishing and making it onto that most popular title strip or titles that are dedicated to diversifying games, having, for example, more diverse NPCs for people to put into their games. And it's just completely changed the landscape of DMs Guild. And in critics' reviews of the first um, Uncaged volume, folks were saying that, honestly, this is kind of a game changer for fifth edition d as a whole you guys have done charity streams, like so much has happened because of this idea and this tweet into the void. Yeah. It's almost sort of like a phenomenon. So did it surprise you, the response? Why do you think it resonated so much with people?
1: Yeah, I, I was surprised and remained surprised even though I've been working on this project for a year. And I think that myth... Retelling myth and folklore and fairy tales is continues to be something that really resonates with people in general. We see a lot of this in fiction still. There's kind of this whole wave of fairy tale retellings, much of which focus on making any like a princess or um, a witch or any sort of character like that like much more powerful and giving them a lot more agency. So I feel like that's just kind of a trend in popular culture right now. Anyway, in part because. Feminism as a concept and just as a lifestyle is we talk about it a lot more openly. We still have a lot more struggles and, and there's there's a lot of fight left, but I feel like it's a conversation that we're able to, to have and that trickles into all of the art that we consume. And I think that a lot of the people in Uncaged got to d d in similar ways that I did. We, A lot of us had an interest in it for many years, but never necessarily felt like we were welcome at a lot of gaming tables. There was very much this portrayal of d d as kind of a white men's hobby. And of course, there were always women, always people of color, and always um, people from marginalized communities who have been part of the DD community. I don't necessarily believe that that was always shown very publicly. And so I feel like having a project like this, it kind of brought us all out of our kind of corners. And we came together as a group, knowing that we would have the support of each other. And I wasn't actually, I wasn't really sure who would be interested in a project like Uncaged when I initially put out the call. I did emphasize from the very beginning that I wanted marginalized creators to have priority for being part of the project, just by nature of the project, because it's about these creatures who have been treated a certain way by society. And I wanted to give new writers a chance to be a part of this project. And so I really tried to make the emphasis on on welcoming those new writers. As a result, our community pretty organically is diverse. But I also think that anyone who's running a group project has a responsibility to reach out to creators. Like if if they see that there's people who aren't being reflected in their group, then I believe that we have a responsibility to draw those people into our group and show that it is welcome. Sometimes if you just put out a call, you only get people who are like in your bubble And so it was important to me that the project felt truly reflective of the community um, who were interested in creating this kind of content. But ultimately, I feel like it happened pretty organically. And I'm very, I was very delighted to see that. And I think just the topic of the book, the whole theme, just really appeals to people in a lot of different ways. And I can only really speak to my experiences, but I'm really I, I always find it very empowering to study mythology and and the women. In these stories because of how they're able to overcome struggle in in various ways, either through you know, strength or through their intelligence or their communities. So I like to think that that's kind of the main draw.
0: Um, you mentioned that DD for a lot of the creators involved in Uncaged may have been intimidating at best, perhaps even unwelcoming, just because it seemed like it was a space for men and white men in particular. What does it mean for you personally uh, to be a woman in this space uh, and a creator?
1: I feel somewhat lucky in the sense that my first my first experience with d d meant that I wasn't the only woman at the table. And most of my group are comprised of people of color and just because we're all friends. And so I feel like we have such a great my group itself is is not what I think traditional D D groups look like and I'm I feel like, um, and that I think is more common, especially as we have more uh, live play shows that show all these different groups from around the world playing D&D together. But I feel like for me, it was very nice to, to feel like I was part of a welcome table right off the bat. Um, I don't know if I had gone to like my local gaming store at the time, if I would have felt that same kind of welcoming atmosphere. And I think it also just helped that I play D&D with people that I'm very close with. And I choose to only play D&D with people that I have a friendship with, because for me, it's a fairly personal experience. And I only really feel comfortable doing that with people who I know will let me delve into that and not feel uncomfortable from it. But I mean, I don't know. I think that seeing, I really think that Representation is so important, and I think that's really what has changed D D for the better in the kind of our, the recent history of it. Is seeing that there are groups comprised of of women and or, you know people from all walks of life that it's not just something that is. I don't necessarily like when cultures are seen as like we're white men are the arbiters of what's good, and sometimes I still struggle with that as a creator. I feel like I'll, most of the time my work is reviewed by white men, and I. We'll always take a review and stride and apply whatever their suggestions are to it. But I really would like to see more non white cis men reviewing content because I still feel like overall the lens of D&D is still looked through through a very like white male lens. Mm-hmm. Um, and I still kind of struggle with that as a creator when, and, and same with when I'm running the RPG writer workshop. I, inevitably, every time I run that workshop, I get emails and messages from white cis men who are telling me what I'm teaching wrong about narrative design and about writing content. And I would never claim to be an expert or be perfect at any of these things, but I do definitely feel like I bring value to the table. And so that's kind of been more of my struggle is that I feel like a lot of my work is evaluated by people who I don't necessarily identify with and they project their own experiences or their own knowledge often, which is like they have decades more knowledge of D&D and the worlds and the lore and game writing um, than I do. And so they project a lot of that onto me and those kinds of expectations. So it's just kind of been a matter of me determining like what I want most from those kinds of interactions and also at some point not caring about that as much and helping to push the shift into maybe other people can be the arbiters of what's good in D&D and RPGs in general. Yeah, so I guess as a player, I feel like my experience has been very positive. As a writer, I've definitely kind of run into some of those obstacles a little bit.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a struggle, especially like we've grown up in a culture where we're we're used to that being the lens. And then also as a creator, like everyone has imposter syndrome already. Mm Mm-hmm. So you don't need that on top of it. (laughs) So you've touched on this, but I mean, a lot of what you do kind of pushes the boundaries of what D&D can be, what d d monsters can be, who can be involved in the community as creators or players or otherwise. And whenever there is that sort of progress, there's always a little bit of pushback. What sort of pushback have you seen as a response to Uncaged?
1: I will say that the response has been overwhelmingly positive from, and not just from people who are from marginalized communities, but we have had a lot of very vocal support from kind of the old school people who have been part of the D&D community. Like I can't tell you how many people have approached me at cons who are older white men who I wouldn't necessarily – I mean, again, I'm kind of projecting my own bias here, but this is just from my own experience. But I wouldn't necessarily know what they would think of a project like Uncaged, like if we're ruining D&D, which is a claim that we've gotten – multiple times. Um, But they've been overwhelmingly positive and supportive and have purchased our book and have shared it and have recommended it to others and given us nice reviews. So I feel like for the most part, I really think that our experience has been so positive in the D&D community. But we've definitely gotten a bit of pushback. Our, Our first volume definitely encouraged some interesting comments, one of which was that we had too many lesbian characters in the book, which has kind of become our rallying cry Where, um, because I responded to their comment and I said that we were going to ramp up the lesbians for volume two, which I'm very pleased to say that we did. And so um, because a lot of our community is comprised of LGBT members, including myself. And so we definitely get those kinds of comments, not that frequently but they tend to be very vocal when we do get them. And so that's that's been a criticism that we've seen a few times that there's just there's too many queer characters and it's like okay, well, that is not something that we were ever going to change. So, um this might not be the book for you. And then we get people who say that we are, like, taking DD too seriously and that we don't need to be, like, overthinking how these monsters are portrayed. Like, they're just monsters. Just use them as written, and that's what d d is. It's just fun fantasy. And, I mean, I do agree with that. I think d d is very fun fantasy. But I don't see – to me, part of the fun is reinventing these – creature stories. And it doesn't necessarily mean that we make them all the heroes. Like it's okay for Medusa to still be a villain. But what I find interesting is like why is she the villain in this particular campaign? Why did someone give you 200 gold to go kill her in this cave? Like what what is the reason for that? And why are your characters responding the way that they are? And so I think that that's really interesting because I play D&D and I read literature and I consume art to be challenged in some way. And So I would say that those are usually the biggest criticisms. But ultimately, I feel like the response has been so good. I think people are excited by all of these new voices in Dungeons & Dragons because it's essentially setting us up for what the future of this, this hobby will be. And that's been really exciting to see that we have so much support for that. But you know, there's always people who won't like what we do who claim that we're ruining their hobby and that we're we're doing it wrong. <laughs> and that's just kind of the reality of being a creator in any sense. I think and if we were creating any kind of art, we would be getting pushback like that. It's not just in the DD world. Yeah, I feel very fortunate though that our book has been, our series has been so well received though
0: overall. I'm sure there are many, but if you had to pick one, what is like a major lesson you've learned through working on Uncaged, either as a producer or as someone working with a lot of new creators, or even just a life lesson. Oh, geez. There's been there's so much. Uncaged
1: has changed my life in in many ways. It's also been just an unthinkable amount of work, not just for me, but for everyone involved, just to make this project a reality there's more than a hundred creators from around the world involved and that alone is just is quite a feat and i approached uncaged having run and been the director of projects before it wasn't this wasn't my first time organizing a group of people. It's definitely the first time it's been this many people and and so like spread out just across the world. And that alone is a challenge. But I've definitely learned that one is that I felt like I had a very strong creative vision of Uncaged from the get go. And I, I'm very glad that I kind of stuck to that no matter what. I definitely never felt like I had to ever compromise my creative vision. And I think that's really important that when you have someone who's producing a project that they really have a clear idea for what it should be. And I'm grateful. That I've been able to work with just amazing artists and writers to who also believed in that vision. But I think that it really helps when you have so many people to have someone who can be just the leader of it and establish like what the outcome will be. I think that it's there are definitely times that I got burnt out. And so if I were ever to do a project like this, again, I probably wouldn't do it on such a massive scale. When I put out the initial call for submissions, I was not planning to do more than one volume. I thought we'd have one book and there would be like 10 adventures in it. That was not the case because we have four (sighs) volumes that each have 20 to 25 adventures. And we have an idea for a fifth book next year. So I just was basically like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's just like get as many people involved as possible, which I very much believe in doing because it really is important to me that we had so many new voices involved in this project. But just the scope of it with how i'm used to operating was was quite a lot for me. So i think that learning how to be a better delegator, which is not my strong suit, is a very important thing to know when you're organizing a big project like this. And i'm approaching future anthology projects differently because of that lesson. Because i did i wanted this project to be enjoyable for everyone who was contributing to it too. I didn't want our writers and artists and editors to feel frazzled and stressed and that they didn't have the information that they needed and that they just felt unempowered to make creative choices. So it was important to me that they all knew that um, I was behind them 100% and that here's all of you know the clear deadlines. Here's everything that you need to do your part well. But that just meant that I kind of internalized a lot of the other things. Like I took on a lot of responsibility and that just made it hard for me to just function as a normal person and other aspects of my life. So I would just say that you definitely have to prioritize self-care when you're running such a massive project. And just the fact that, like, it has been such a a big project, I put a lot of pressure on myself to make it look beautiful, to make it well edited, to make sure that it's accessible to people. And that's just, I don't know, it's just, it just feels like a lot to take on. So I think that the more that you can share that responsibility with other people, I think is an important life lesson just in general. Like, it's okay to ask for help.
0: Oh, gosh, such a good life lesson. And (laughs) for producers and just honestly, creators and freelancers in general prioritizing self-care is really important. Yeah, I know you understand that all too well. (laughs) Oh my gosh, that could be a whole, it's whole own episode. Yeah. As we wrap up our interview, although I feel like I could talk to you for hours Mm -hmm. about all the different things you work on. I'm sure you've been interviewed. In fact, I know, I know you've been interviewed about Uncaged a bunch of times and you've done panels and you've talked about it a lot. Is there anything that no one ever asks you about Uncaged that you wish they would? Oh my goodness. That is
1: such an interesting question. And you know, it's funny because I'm sure as soon as we're done with our talk, I'll, I'll think of all these things, but I'm trying to think of something now. I feel like I'm very grateful that I've been given so many opportunities to talk about the project and I don't really feel like there's much that people don't know about it. I feel like I also try to be transparent about how the project comes together just because I think it's... It's interesting to know. I, I'm always interested to know how other projects come to life, and I try to be kind of vocal about that just so other people, you maybe can learn from my experiences. But um, I don't I don't know. I feel like I get a lot of the I get a lot of the same questions, but I'm always, you know happy to answer that. I guess. I will say that I I wrote an adventure that's in volume two, and I don't usually talk about my contribution to the book, but I really enjoyed actually getting to write an adventure um, that is part of the collection. Yeah, what monster was yours about? Yeah, so my adventure was about Baba Yaga. And my reinterpretation of that is that I kind of wove in some history. I'm really passionate about World War II history and, and war history in general, and especially about women's place in war. That's like a theme that I'm really passionate about in in literature and in history. And so my story is about the night witches who were actually like a group of female pilots and snipers during World War II, um, Soviet snipers. And so I basically made a fantastical version of them where they're actual witches. And Baba Yaga is like the commander of This army who are fending off demons from reclaiming the city that's gone back and forth with this with the blood war for decades, and so I really had fun making Baba Yaga into this formidable character. Like she's an old woman who has been kind of embittered by her experiences in war. There's some trauma there, but she was once a young woman, and no one ever really thinks of Baba Yaga as once being a young person. We only think of her in her like old witchy state, and so I enjoyed kind of bringing her to life and making her more of a power powerful crone rather than just this like evil, evil witch who's like terrorizing beautiful young girls. And yeah, I really enjoyed like getting a chance to actually contribute something to Uncaged beyond just my producer role. That was really fun. I had such a blast writing that adventure.
0: Everything about that count- encounter is so you. Like every <laughs> aspect of it. <laughs>
1: yeah. It re- yeah. I feel like it was fun because at the time I was working on a lot of uh, commission work and contract work. And so I hadn't really been working on my own personal projects. So when it came to writing something for Uncaged, and like, I'm going to put everything that I absolutely love and, and, and am obsessed with into this. Adventure, and I definitely feel like that comes through, including the fact that my one of the characters is Constantina. Um, she's like alternate universe Constantina, and one of the other ones is my warlock Amira. So they, um, some of my characters, make appearances as the night witches. Kind of fun, but I am really passionate about Russian folklore. Um, part of my heritage is it, I'm Russian Jewish, and I enjoy opportunities to bring that into things that I write. And bringing you know, Baba Yaga is kind of like the the classic Russian which it was fun to kind of put in my own little spin on that.
0: So if people want to keep in touch with you, find out about all of your future upcoming projects, or if there's any other projects that you have uh, that you'd like to plug, where can people find you on the internet?
1: Sure. All of my work is, can be found through my website, ashleywarrenwrites.com. I'm really active on Twitter my handle is at Ashley N H Warren, And that's a good place to see updates about all my various projects. I'm the director of the RPG Writer Workshop. You can learn about that at RPGWriterWorkshop.com. Again, you can find that through my, my main website as well. And that's a great way for people to learn how to create their first adventures if you're interested in writing your own RPGs. And information about Uncage is on my website. And I also publish some fiction, and links to all of those things are, are on my website, but I, I tend to wear many hats on a regular basis, so it's usually the best
0: place to find all that information. Goodness gracious, Ashley. <laughs> I know. <laughs> <What>? <laughs> Thank you for everything that you do.
1: Thank you so much. Uh, I really feel like my friendship with you is giving me so many opportunities, and in, in part just because now you're in my life as my friend, and I cherish that. Oh,
0: my God. Okay, so the outro will just be me crying. <laughs> <laughs> Jessica Markram is a social worker by day and a writer and creator of RPG adventures by night. She also streams RPGs online as the game master for shows like Paws and Claws and Princesses Save Dragons. I am here today with Jessica Markram from the Uncaged Project. Hi Jess! Hey! How are you? I'm doing alright! How are you? I'm good. So, I guess to kick off this conversation, give me some background on you and tabletop RPGs. How did you get into the hobby?
2: Um, I had kind of a rough start about, ooh, too long ago, almost twenty years ago. My boyfriend invited me to play D and D with him and his crew and midway through character creation. The DM said that he didn't uh, let girls play at his table. <laughs> so then I didn't play again for almost 20 years because so I was really mad. And one of my friends, now that I live in Pittsburgh, was like, it's ridiculous that you don't play RPGs. You know, you act, you sing opera, you love fantasy, you like all of this other nerdy stuff. I think if I ran a game for you, you would really love it. And so he ran a game here at Tunnels and Trolls, actually, for me and a bunch of other newbies. And I loved it. And I was hooked. And within a couple months, I was GMing Mouse Guard. And now I write RPGs.
0: (laughs) That is wild. I mean, I'm sorry you had that first experience. That's just rude on a few different levels. Like at all that that's what he said, and that was his philosophy, but also that it took into the middle of character creation. Yeah. (laughs) So after that experience, what was your impression of RPG games after that? And did it take convincing for you to try it again?
2: It took a lot of convincing because I thought that my whole experience at that point, you know, had been like, what, an hour of character creation of 3.5. So I thought that RPGs were very limited not knowing the wide, enormous world that they are and how you can really be, like, anything you want to be or don't want to be. Yeah, so when my friend was like, no, you can even be a fairy. You can be a leprechaun. You can be a cat person. Like, it just blew my mind, and I was like, what? So I wanted to get into that, and my first character was a fairy rogue with tiger claws. <laughs>
0: With tiger claws, what's the backstory there? Or does she just have tiger claws and everyone's like, yeah, that's normal?
2: They weren't actual tiger claws. That was her weapon. So like spiky brass knuckles. So she'd like fly at people's faces.
0: I was about to say I love that, but then I thought about it for a second and now I'm actually terrified. (laughs) So how did you then hear about and get involved with Uncaged?
2: So, a lot of my friends I know through our friendly local game store, I'll give it a plug, Games Unlimited in Pittsburgh, check it out, they're great, and one of my friends who I know from there, rated to me in the store and showed me Ashley's website and was like, hey... You love mythology, and you love feminist things. You probably know more about mythology than anyone I know, and you are one of the biggest feminists I know. This seems like it was made for you. And I was like, oh, that looks really cool. I'll buy it when it comes out. But, like, I don't write for games. And he was like, but what's stopping you? So I was really nervous about it. Um, I was really scared I wouldn't get in, so I actually pitched – two adventures because I didn't, I don't know, I, I was like, this is really a big deal and I'm not going to make it. But Ashley actually accepted both of them. So family reunions. Oh, wow. in, I know. So family reunions in volume one and the village that wept is coming out in volume four. So that was really, really exciting. And uh, yeah, then I kind of just jumped in with both feet.
0: So were you very involved in the online D&D community before
2: Uncaged? I had just
0: honestly made the assumption that most people heard of it through like hashtag DD or something like that. That's really cool that it was actual like in-person word of mouth.
2: I had a Twitter account, but before Uncaged, like I was barely on Twitter. I'm a social worker in real life and I mostly tweet about like politics and social justice. Now I tweet a lot about games too, but back then my Twitter account was like close to empty. I was on Twitter maybe once a month, so I missed the call to action. Obviously, I wouldn't have thought it applied to me anyway. So it was literally my friend like pulling his phone out of his pocket and being like, look at this thing and then texting me the link that got me to do it. Gosh, I feel like...
0: I have, like, 50 different questions stemming off this, but focus, Lisa. Okay. So I guess the first thing is I noticed as, like, Ashley started tweeting about, like, this idea she had and then people encouraged it and kind of snowballed into Uncaged that – the idea of uncaged this anthology really resonated with people in a way I hadn't seen projects or discussion on projects resonate with people until that point. Yeah. Do you have an idea of like why this re- this why this was or why it resonated with you personally?
2: I got I was fortunate enough to moderate the uncaged panel at Gen Con and the vibe that I sort of got there was that we filled a gap that was missing. Maybe not in the larger TTRPG community, but definitely in the D&D community. So there are some people who like, they like D&D, they just play D&D. That's what they do. They might not go out and play Monster Hearts. They might not go out and play Bluebeard's Bride. And that's fine. I mean, not everybody's going to play every game. So I think... For other people who were kind of having that, I need feminist games. I need queer games need. It wasn't necessarily being filled by a lot of what was currently in the 5E market. And we were able to be like, Hey, here's 25 out of approximately a hundred adventures that are feminist and queer friendly and made by feminist and queer people and people of color and you know, kind of satisfying that desire to see yourself in a game, to see representation of you. And also a lot of the traditional monsters, I mean, this was the whole reason for Ashley's uh, call in the first place, I think. But the way they're described in the monster manual is a little off-putting. Sometimes the way they're drawn, It's a little off-putting and being able to take their stories and flip them on their head, reclaim them, twist it around a bit, I think was really satisfying both for us to do it and then for other people to see that and play it and think like, oh, this is for me. It's not that a Banshee became a Banshee because, you know, she wanted to be beautiful and died pining to be beauty, but maybe there's something more there.
0: And I think that depth is, or that different perspective is something that makes Uncaged just a really interesting supplement set of little adventures for anybody. But I think that other, that other bit you mentioned about how it was like filling this gap and letting more people see themselves represented in this game that is what makes. Uncaged truly special. I'm wondering, maybe related to that, have you noticed changes or shifts in the D&D community, the online D&D community before and after Uncaged?
2: Like I said, I wasn't a huge part of it before, but afterwards, it's been so welcoming, at least to me. I mean, obviously, my first experience of in-person D&D was pretty gatekeeper But online people have been so welcoming and the people who are kind of gatekeeper-y, I've seen them getting shut down or called out. People who aren't respecting boundaries or safety tools are kind of being told like, no, that's not cool. You need to respect boundaries. You need to respect safety tools. Both online and in conventions, like there are consequences for not respecting safety tools, which is new and good. And I like us moving in that direction. And I think, I mean, I know there was that tweet actually about, it was Tales from the Mist, right? That was like, if this is the future of d I'm out. And I was like, well, too bad. Bye. This is the future Eesh. of D&D. <laughs> <laughs> and guess what? It's not just the future. Like we've always been in, you know, maybe not me personally, but like women have always gamed. Queer people have always gained. People of color have always been in this hobby. Just I think now we're more visible. So
0: I didn't realize like you moderated the Uncaged panel uh, at Gen Con, which was a packed room. So cool. Was there anything that came up during the panel that really stood out to you or that maybe even surprised you?
2: We had over 100 people in that room and I was really just inwardly panicking trying to not screw everything up. Well, I shouldn't say I was surprised, but I'm always thrilled and impressed by the grace and poise of um, everyone on that panel. It was Ashley and Sam and Kat and, oh my God, Luciella. Yeah, we had somebody cosplaying as the cover Medusa in the audience. What? Uh, Yeah.
0: That's amazing.
2: (laughs) So... Clearly, the representation is speaking to people. I guess something that surprised me was something that Kat Kruger said about her perspective writing her adventure as a mom, like writing it while she was pregnant and then running it for Uncaged Live, like while holding her child, because it's about a small child and it's a wild hunt and it deals with uh, Kumio and. It had a lot to do like, with her feelings surrounding her and I thought that was very cool.
0: That is very cool. I'm going to have to reread her adventure with that perspective in, in mind. mind. So tell me a little bit about your adventures. You have two, one of which is out there in the world already.
2: So the first one that you can get in volume one of Uncaged is called A Family Reunion. And it's based on a French mythical Feature monster called Melusine. The story of Melusine is basically like a prince spies a beautiful woman bathing in a fountain or a pond like you do and takes her home (laughs) to marry. I was always drawn to her as a kid because unlike a lot of other princesses, she seemed to have agency. So she was like, I'll marry you, but you have to clear the castle every Saturday and no one can be there and no one can watch me. And he was like, okay, fine. And they had several children together, all of which were brilliant scholars and generals and artists, but all monstrous in some way. So like one might have tusks, one might be like nine feet tall, one might have wings or claws or something. And so the king's friends were like, Hey, I think your wife is a witch. You should see what she does on (laughs) Saturdays. Probably witch. (laughs) Right. So he spies on her and sees her bathing with, depending on the legend, either an enormous fishtail or an enormous snake body. And in some legends, she sees him and it's like, ah, and flies away, which is interesting because she's not described as having wings. But in other ones, <laughs> he keeps it on the down low and then later in court just makes a lot of veiled references to it. So he's like, oh, well, that seems kind of fishy don't you think? (laughs) And she gets pissed and like curses his house and again, flies out the window, which again, she doesn't have wings. So I just imagined her with a little like propeller tail. Oh (laughs) my God. (laughs) But it said that like her children were then hunted to death. And so I wanted to make an adventure where it was like, you get to rescue her kids. Like she is away in her past castle after she's been like screw you the king so I pitched it to Ashley as like Pokemon <laughs> meets Monster Hunter but you don't get to damage any of the monsters so you're hired by Melusine at the beginning to bring her children to her for a family reunion so you go out and encounter all of these different monsters and beasts but they're like the great generals and singers and scientists the realm, and you kind of have to convince them to go
0: visit their mom. That is an amazing concept, also an amazing story to be inspired
2: by. I love that adventure cool or that tale. legend. So, you and I was had it done- so sad that her kids died because, like, yeah, they, they just looked kind of weird.
0: Yeah, what they didn't ask for this. Also, they sounds like they were really contributing to society. What the heck, right? Yeah, so you you hadn't done any TRPG design before no. this, correct? So how did you approach that? You had this amazing concept. What did you do when you actually had to sit down and make this thing?
2: Well, I've been like DMing, GMing for a few years. So I was used to like my kind of scattered notes from that. And I started by just sort of flipping through the monster manual and finding any monsters that were about at the same, like, level that I I picked a Yon-T for Melusine. So other monsters that were around the same level that I thought made sense as like a half-human, half-monstrous hybrid. Mm-hmm. So I don't want to spoil anything, but if you can think of anything that looks like kind of human-y and kind of not human-y, you might encounter that in the adventure. And sort of went from there. And then Ashley gave us a template that I love. It was really helpful. And because I didn't know any better, I just sat down on the couch and wrote for 10 hours straight.
0: (laughs) That's one way to do it.
2: Yeah. And then I was done. And I was like, I can't even read through this right now. I'll look over it tomorrow. And yeah, so then the next day, I actually read through it and play tested it and then send it off to the editors.
0: Awesome. Do you feel like you learned anything from that first one that you brought to the next?
2: I learned so much from the first. Well, I actually wrote the one for volume four first. Okay. Well then
0: backwards then.
2: Uh, Yeah. (laughs) And that one is more a mystery. So it's a lot of investigation. So it has a different format. And I The big thing that I learned from that was that you don't have to explain everything and you don't have to describe everything. The DMs will fill in so much information that you didn't even put in there just with a few keywords of ambiance because I was really overwriting everything because I wanted everyone to know exactly what everything looked like because I did so much research on Mexican history Mm -hmm. for a La Llorona adventure and I wanted everyone to know how like exact it was
0: any other lessons you feel like you learned along the way that you would pass along to someone else who wants to break into rpg design
2: yeah i the big things i would say would just be to reach out to someone in the community to have them read your work or just advise you because having a support network is huge because it's really easy to doubt yourself So, whether that's your local community, whether that's somebody on Twitter, like, you can reach out to me. I'm around. I don't have much of a life. So, just take a look at things and, you know, tell you that you're doing something good and you're good at this can be all that it takes sometimes to keep you going. And just write because sometimes it's really hard to just sit down and write. Or I've heard from artists, sometimes it's hard to just sit down and draw. And just doing it for like 10, 15 minutes can be what you need to do for that day.
0: I've noticed that since Uncaged, you've started putting out on Dungeon Master's Guild some very interesting archetypes, subclasses.
2: Yes. Catterwalling, and there was a cat burglar, I think. Yes. And just recently, uh, Cat Evans who has been editing my stuff and then I edited this for her came out with the mouser which is a ranger archetype. <laughs> so we are hoping to do tabaxi for or tabaxi based archetypes for all of the classes and then release them all in a bundle when they're all complete.
0: I adore this dearly. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) do you find you enjoy adventure writing more or um, sort of like mechanics and creating classes more
2: I would say definitely faster to create mechanics or to create like with Berthazar's House of Familiars was something that I had a little bit of a hand in and creating familiars was really fast like just came up with you know, a monster that would be terrible to have as an adventuring companion and put it in the book (laughs) kind of thing. So those were quick and easy. Adventures take a lot of time and you have to think like, would this be fun and balancing like combat with investigation, with role-playing and having more of a point, more of something to say. Whereas I feel like when I write a monster or a class, I could just throw out a bunch of nonsense. (laughs) um so for me I think I love doing adventures and I do a few game jams so I have a couple completed games over on itch too and I like spend a little more time on those and then I like to do things like the cat burglar or the college of caterwauling as sort of a palate cleanser to like put something out really quickly That's just fun and kind of silly for me before I get into something longer, like an adventure that takes a lot of playtesting to make sure that, you know, it's fun and not 20 hours and isn't a TPK.
0: So you mentioned the game jams. Is that what's... So I saw on your Twitter profile something called Squad Goals, and I knew I wanted to ask you what that was.
2: Yeah, I made that for Mythology Jam and Folklore Jam, so that's a Powered by the Apocalypse game, where you play as one of six women from world mythology from all over the world. So if you've played a Powered by the Apocalypse game, you know that they each have their own like abilities, um, and these are all based in the myth. So there's one from Irish mythology, there's one from Cherokee mythology, one from South African, one from Brazilian, there's a Valkyrie, and one from Chinese. It's sort of like a Saturday morning superhero cartoon with mythological female badasses kind of together. So my idea was sort of like Super Friends or Justice League, but with, you know, female warriors and magic wielders.
0: I'm obsessed. (laughs) This is amazing. Thank you. Uh, I also wanted to make sure I asked you about some of the other D&D RPG things that you do. You're in a number of streams, Paws and Claws, uh, and also Princesses Save Dragons.
2: Yes. Uh, So So tell me a little bit about uh, these shows. So Paws and Claws is a Pugmire Monarchies of Mao stream that's on the Onyx Path Twitch channel, every Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern, and if you know Pugmire the Mao, it's very similar mechanics to d and d but everyone is a dog or a cat, and it takes place long after humans are gone, and dogs and cats are now the dominant species, and they battle amongst each other, and they battle demons called the unseen, so like whenever your dog or start barking at nothing or your cat suddenly starts running around the house for no reason. It's because they're protecting you from the unseen. So I have uh, six wonderful dogs and cats right now. And yeah, they go on adventures every Tuesday night. And Princesses Save Dragons actually started from a tweet by Danny Yogami. Just saying, like, I really want people to group cosplay as Disney princesses next year at Gen Con. And people were like, how about princesses with D&D characters? And people started dating them. And I was like, I want to run that game. <laughs> and so pretty much everyone who responded and was like, I want to be in that game. I was like, okay, cool. Mm-hmm. So now we have two squads, a Sunday squad that I run and a Friday squad that hasn't started to air yet but will soon. Uh, DM'd by Noah Grant. And they are... Not quite Disney because copyright laws, but um, public domain princesses who go (laughs) out and save dragons every Sunday at 8 p.m. Eastern and soon Friday nights as well.
0: Oh my goodness, that sounds really fabulous. I gotta say, just even chatting with you for this short time, there's really this... Like this joy and passion for all of these concepts and uh, for the game design that comes across through uh, the digiverse, the interwebs uh, (laughs) as we're chatting, which is really lovely. I guess we talked about this a little bit at the beginning, chatting about your first experiences with D&D and the transition, but um, I'll throw this out there, kind of a broad question. This is Behold Her podcast, after all.
2: I love that name, by yeah. the way. Oh, thank so you. Smart. <laughs> so smart.
0: What does it mean to you to be a woman in gaming, and now a woman designer in gaming as well?
2: Okay, so I feel like it should just be like being a person in gaming, right? Because we're like 50% of the population, and they've done studies that say we're also slightly more than 50% of gamers And yet at the same time, it takes a certain amount of bravery because how many times have you gone to a store or a convention and when someone's like, oh, I'm waiting for the DM and you're like, that's me. I'm the DM. You get that look of like, what? Really? Mm. Or how many times have you gone into a store, a game store, when they're like, oh, are you shopping for your boyfriend? That one's a piece of
0: mine when it's like you're in the hobby because of your boyfriend.
2: So I feel like it takes a certain amount of bravery and a certain willingness to stand up for yourself and self-promote while at the same time also kind of bringing other people along with you because, I mean, it's sort of like being a woman anywhere in the world. Mm -hmm. There are people that don't want you here and... So I'm bi. So I'm a queer woman, but I'm married to a man. So I have street privilege in that way. Like people see me and they're not like, oh, she's obviously queer. But in a lot of, there's a lot of places where people would think that I should not be or I should not exist. And when your existence is political or controversial to some people, I think you have to stand up for yourself and assert yourself. And help make it safe for people who are coming after you.
0: I think all of the things that you're doing, working on the Uncaged Anthology, Princesses Save Dragons, you're, you're doing it. That's exactly what you're doing.
2: Thank you. I think you're doing a lot of fun with this
0: podcast. <laughs> so was there anything that I didn't ask you about that you wanted to say or definitely wanted to discuss?
2: I have so many projects in the works. Like, I have so many deadlines coming up. So I just want to say, like, yeah, look at my website. I have so many things. I can't even keep track of that. My calendar is a disaster. (laughs)
0: Well, that's a good transition to my next question, then. If you want to see all those so many things, (laughs) once they're ready for the public eye, how can people find you on the interwebs?
2: So you can follow my Twitter at miss underscore Jeff zero three. You can go to my website and buy my things at jessicamarkrumwrites.com. My last name is kind of funny, but I'm sure it's in the name of the episode notes, so that's fine. I have a Patreon. That's patreon.com slash jess and I've got a Kofi, coffee, whatever it is. That's on my Twitter, too. And if you want to watch Princesses Save Dragons, it's twitch.tv slash girl. And if you want to watch paws and claws, that is twitch.tv slash the
0: Yes, all the things. Go find Jess.
2: Oh, and Paws and Claws also has a Patreon. It's patreon.com slash paws and claws rpg. Or pause, pause rpg. I should know. I made the Patreon. Um, for that. <laughs> you can find it. It's there. It's the one with the dogs and the cats on it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, Jess, so much for coming on Beholder and chatting with me.
2: This was so fun. Thank you so much. And thank you for everything that you do with the Mfield. I hope they ever let you go on vacation and breathe.
0: Colette Kwok, who goes by She-They, is a California-based writer and game designer. She has a strong passion for diversity and inclusivity in the entertainment industry. Drawing from her own culture, her work is focused on creating diverse fantasy worlds that everyone can see themselves in. You can find her recent work in Uncaged, Volume 3, and Friends, Foes, and Other Fine Folks.
3: At the time when Uncaged came around, I just graduated university with a film production degree. But late in my degree, I kind of realized that I wanted to do game design, and specifically writing for games. Luckily enough, I was able to do some of that work while I was still finishing up my degree, My senior thesis was even about race and fantasy, where I was talking about how much I love Dungeons and Dragons and the Dragon Age series. But I had a lot of issues with how race was portrayed and how race is talked about within these genres. So after graduation, I did what any college graduate does. I was applying for jobs and getting little to no responses. In addition to that, my D&D group that I was a part of had a falling out. We all got into D&D at the same time and became really close friends because of that. But the falling out was, part of it was due to distance, but the other part was just some underlying issues that we had. While I'm still friends with some of them, we don't play with each other anymore. So I was feeling like I was going nowhere and I made a huge mistake with my career. And Dungeons and Dragons kind of had a bad taste in my mouth for a while. I found Ashley's post through one of my old professors who shared it on Twitter. At first, I was terrified. I wanted to do it, but I never published anything D&D related, and I had very little writing credits to my name. But with the help of one of my friends, I ripped the theoretical bandage off of me and sent something in at what I remember it was like the last hour or the last couple of hours before the deadline. And it was the best decision I've ever made. When I got the email that my pitch was accepted, I nearly fell out of my chair. I was so excited. I was so happy to be working on this project because I really, really wanted to talk about diversity and talk about the creatures that I wanted to talk about through a feminist lens. Now that all the excitement was over, it was time for me to actually write my adventure. My adventure is titled The Serpent in the Sea and I showcase the Naga, which is present in a lot of Southeast Asian cultures. I'm Chinese and I'm also part Cambodian. So I really wanted to bring about my own interpretation, my own understanding of Cambodian culture. My dad was from Cambodia, but we had very little family because of the Khmer Rouge, a regime that killed 25% of the population during that time. And while him and some of his siblings escaped, his parents and some of his other siblings weren't able to. While we just don't know what happened to them, we had an underlying conclusion that they never made it out there alive. And we don't really talk about what happened. There's a lot of trauma about it, obviously. And not only did a lot of people die during that regime, a lot of the culture was taken away, destroyed, or we just don't talk about it. Because a lot of the traditions and history and culture was shared through oral traditions rather than writing it down. So having none of that make it out is really hard. And especially with a lot of trauma going on, It's hard to talk about the country without bringing that up. The first time I went to Cambodia was in middle school. That's where I fell in love with Southeast Asian culture and wanted to learn more about Cambodia. And it was also the first time I learned about the Naga that wasn't through games. In games, we often see them, but the interpretation has always been very off. It was always creatures that are for evil and that are all about killing, and they're usually portrayed as monsters. But in Cambodia and other Southeast Asian countries, while their interpretations are different, they always are very similar. The Naga are benevolent beings in a lot of the cultures and how they protect the rivers and how they help those that are in need. And I really like that, and I really wanted to re-portray them as something true to their nature and how they were created in Southeast Asia. One of the aspects I wanted to incorporate in my adventure is the river. The harvest festival that shows up in the adventure is a way to give thanks to the river for providing food and also a way for transportation, which is very similar to many Southeast Asian cultures. The Mekong cuts through many of the countries and also provides food and transportation for those areas. And I provided a lot of imagery and colors within my adventure of blues and greens just to, you know, get at the point of it. Another aspect that I wanted to incorporate in my adventure is death culture, because I think Western and Asian culture of death is very different. In Western culture, in my opinion, is very much we have the funeral rites and everything and we grieve, but then we kind of have to move on. The end goal is for us to move on. And they're just in a better place. But for Southeast Asian or Asian cultures, I feel like we do the funeral rites and we have a grieving process. But we just kind of accept it. But we talk about how much they're still with us in the future and how they give us prosperity and all that. My family in particular, every year we go visit my grandparents on my mom's side of uh, the family to you know clean the grave and just give offerings and just talk about oh, they're here, they're going to help us get money, jobs, and just watch over us for good. And same thing with my grandparents on my dad's side. Well, I never met them. We go to visit them whenever we go to Hong Kong. There's a little shrine that my dad has for them in a Buddhist temple. We go and pray and do the same thing over there. I remember one time I was there after we visited them and we were leaving, a white butterfly showed up. And my dad said, oh, that's your grandparents watching over us. And it really meant a lot to me, it kind of just stuck with me. I'm just like, oh, okay. And I wanted to incorporate that in the Harvest Festival, where there's a shrine that people go to as a way to just like reflect and remember, which is, I think, really important. in d and D. I I think we don't have time to kind of narratively reflect on our characters as characters in their past and just have a way to go about that. So each and every single aspect of my adventure really draws from my own culture because I'm doing all the research and finding out who I am on my own because it is such a painful experience to talk about Cambodian culture, especially what my parents have to go through. So it really means a lot to kind of write this down and then send it off to the world as a way to actually remember them. And I thought after Uncage, I write this down and I publish it. It's on to the next thing, which I didn't know. But I never really expected to have a community, a community of writers, creators, artists who really value diversity and inclusion and want to continue creating with one another. I remember how... There is a channel where we are just like, what about this idea? And then just everyone's like, yes, absolutely. Where do I sign up? Got to the point where I created a spreadsheet just for us to document all these ideas and make sure everything's on track. And one of the recent adventures or projects that I was a part of that recently got published is Friends, Foes, and Other Fine Folks, which is a diverse NPC book with NPCs from various identities and experiences. I wrote two NPCs. One of them in particular is based on Southeast Asian fruit vendors, or just vendors in general. Because I think, who loves fruit? Who doesn't love fruit? And I feel like there's a lot of magical weapon sellers that we just need something simple, you know? We need a world who needs food, you know? <laughs> there's a bunch of other projects coming up. Can't talk about them because we're still working on it. But um, there's a lot coming from us and very much enforcing diversity, inclusion. And honestly, I never would have expected it. And I'm glad this happened because honestly, Uncage has changed my life for the better. I have the confidence to write and publish my own work because I know there's a bunch of other people who are behind my back. Supporting me, and it really did reignite my passion for Dungeons and Dragons and tabletop RPG. You can find Colette on Twitter at
0: Colette That's spelled C O L L E T T E Q U A C H for updates on her work and really bad takes. Thank you, Ashley, Jessica, and Colette, for sharing your stories with Behold Her. If you want to help Behold Her grow, consider giving us some stars or a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Interested in sponsoring the next audio story so we can keep compensating some great content creators? Go to beholdherpodcast.com. Thanks for listening.